We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Pro teams have millions to spend, and they don't always spend them wisely. But when it comes to a great shave, you don't have to shell out tons of cash. Harry's saw customers getting ripped off by the shaving industry with overpriced, underperforming products and decided to do something better. They found their own way to make beautifully designed razors for a fraction of the price of the other big brands, so you never wonder if you overpaid. Harry's shaving products look great, and the weighted handle makes shaving feel great too. I like to keep my beard neat, and Harry's always leaves me with a smooth yet crisp shave. Harry's quality is top-notch, thanks to German-engineered blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. You can get a five-blade razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and a travel cover for just three bucks at harrys.com slash bluewire. And Harry's has the highest customer satisfaction in the shaving industry, plus a convenient subscription option that you can cancel at any time. Getting the best doesn't mean spending the most when you shave with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash bluewire. That's harrys.com slash bluewire for a $3 trial set. And away we go, episode 141 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Thursday, September 9th, 2021, the day of the start of the 2021 NFL regular season. Opening night, we have actual, meaningful, real-life, regular season NFL football on Thursday night, and it is a game that we as Washington football team fans will be watching the Dallas Cowboys at the reigning, defending Super Bowl champion, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the team that we as Washington fans despise the most at the team that ended Washington's 2020 season. But of course, we know who to root for in this game. We are all Bucks fans on this opening night. Channel your inner Vinny Testaverde your inner Steve DeBerg, heck, your inner Doug Williams. Pick your all-time favorite Buccaneers quarterback and have at it on Thursday night. Football is back. Football is here. And you've picked the right podcast to be listening to. Hello and welcome to a Thursday installment of the Al Galdi podcast, the home of the best Washington football team talk 
in the country and the only DC Sports Podcast for which there are new episodes each weekday, Monday through Friday, out by 5 a.m. And boy, do we have a lot to get to with the W to the F to the T on this show. Next segment, I will give to you some additional thoughts on the Tanya Snyder appearance on the Adam Schefter podcast and the ensuing name change confusion. Man, what a mess that ended up becoming, including Ron Rivera being confused. Yeah, wait till you hear something that Don Ron said at his post-practice press conference on Wednesday. Uh, By the way, I know there are some people who say, "Uh, focus on the game. Stop talking about this name stuff. I I get such a kick out of that, okay? The name change is a big deal. Maybe not to you personally, but to a lot of people, okay? They care about the name change and what the permanent name is going to be. The latest in the name change has come to us from Tanya Snyder the co-CEO, the wife of the majority owner. This isn't like manufactured WFT talk in the middle of July. This is stuff from the co-CEO that's worthy of being explored. But also there's this. It is possible to focus on more than one thing at once. Like you can talk about the name change stuff and also talk about week one against the Chargers. We're not limited to just one thing, not on this podcast anyway. And so on this installment of the podcast, I have a lot for you on week one against the Chargers. Wednesday was not a good day in the Curtis Samuel saga. Unless this whole thing is one big con, uh, things do not appear to be trending well regarding Samuel playing in Washington's regular season opener on Sunday against the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field, we shall discuss. Samuel continues to be a big topic at these post-practice press conferences. Ron Rivera on Wednesday got asked about Samuel a lot. Uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick on Wednesday got asked about Samuel. Ron on Wednesday gave us a scouting report of sorts on the Chargers. I want to talk about that. And Ron on Wednesday addressed the signing of kicker Eddie Pinheiro to the practice squad this past Friday. What does the Pinheiro signing mean for Dustin Hopkins. We'll get into that. Uh, Also, the Washington football team on Wednesday announced captains for the 2021 season. There is an undeniable reality about Washington captains in recent history that you need to be aware of. I will make you aware coming up. Uh, Wednesday night was a rare night this year in that both the Nationals and the Orioles won uh, for the Nats, a 4-2 win at the National League East leading Atlanta Braves in a game in which the Nats starting pitcher Sean Nolan got ejected for hitting Freddie Freeman with a pitch in retaliation for Juan Soto being hit by a pitch on Tuesday night. And then Soto later in the game hit a ball to the moon uh, for the O's, a 9-8 win over the Kansas City Royals at Oriole Park at Camden Yards in a game in which the O's scored nine runs in the bottom of the eighth in front of the smallest announced crowd ever at Camden Yards for a game for which full capacity was allowed. I'll discuss both the Nats and the O's later in the show. As remember, this podcast goes in-depth on the Nats, but also doesn't ignore the Orioles, as there are many Orioles fans still in the DMV. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Tweet from Michael Amore, uh, writes Michael, WFT family in Connecticut, all homemade shirts. So he's got his family all wearing homemade Washington football team influence shirts, including someone wearing a t-shirt that reads position flex. Position flex. 
Yes, Ron. Position flex. Michael, that is outstanding. I bow down to you and your family for those homemade shirts, especially, obviously, the position flex t-shirts. Very well done. Uh, email from Jeffrey Brenton writes, Jeffrey, RR, as in Ron Rivera, has proven himself as an excellent culture changer slash fixer. His player evaluation skills will be tested this season. Corner depth, short yardage situations, and field goal success will be very interesting to watch this year. Listen every day. <laughs> Theme song is in my head. In Ron, we trust. Well, thank you, Jeff. The theme song for this podcast is the thing that you want to hate, but can't help but love. And yes, I agree with you. Uh, those things that you mentioned are particular tests of the mantra of in Ron, we trust. But Ron has earned the benefit of the doubt with him being proven right on a number of things last season. You know, on offense, Ron was proven right on Logan Thomas, J.D. McKissick, Antonio Gibson, especially when you look at it as Gibson over Adrian Peterson. You know, there were people who said, what is Ron doing cutting Adrian Peterson? Well, it turns out Ron knew exactly what he was doing. You know, you think about on defense last season, Ronald Darby, uh, Jeremy Reeves over Eric Reed. You know, you had people clamoring for Ron to sign Eric Reed. Instead, Ron promotes Reeves from the practice squad, gets good play from Jeremy Reeves late in the regular season. Uh, on special teams, look, we got to say it's sticking with Dustin Hopkins. Remember, Hopkins was very good on field goals down the stretch last season. Hopkins over Washington's final six games of the 2020 regular season, 13 of 14 on field goals. Take that, Eddie Pinheiro. Uh, was Ron right on everything? No, nobody is. But Ron was right on a lot of things. Just like Weedman is right for your lawn. Look, football season is here. Your Saturdays now are spent watching college football. Your Sundays now are going to be spent watching the NFL. And if you have some other free time, eh, maybe you spend a few minutes with your family. But you shouldn't have to worry about taking care of your lawn. Let Weedman handle your lawn. Weedman cares for your lawn. So you don't have to. Weedman provides what your lawn needs to look great. Fertilization, weed control, aeration, seeding, and a variety of other services. If you don't have the time or the knowledge to make your lawn look great, no worries. Let Weedman take care of your lawn. Weedman is a national network of locally owned franchises. So you'll receive the personal service that you deserve. You see, Weedman answers your phone calls and emails promptly. Weedman does what it says it's going to do. Now, all of that sounds simple, and it is, but it's not nearly as common as it should be. When you call Weedman, you're speaking to someone in an office in your area, not to someone somewhere in like the Midwest. You're not waiting for 30 minutes to speak to that someone. Weedman actually has real answers that have meaning in our area, and Weedman tends to your needs. If you have, say, a certain area on your lawn that needs attention, Weedman will take care of that area. You're not dealing with some huge faceless corporation that treats you like a number. Also, Weedman uses superior products that really improve your soil, and Weedman only treats what needs to be treated. If you're not satisfied with your lawn, if you're not satisfied with who is treating your lawn, make the switch to Weedman. Now, a beautiful spring lawn starts in the fall. And so Weedman right now is offering something special to listeners of the Al Galdi podcast, a fall tune-up at a great price, an aeration and two fall fertilization services for just $209. That's about $100 off the usual price. 
for those services. The price is a steal. The price applies to lawns of up to 6,000 square feet. So here's what you do. Call 571-340-3400. When you call, make sure that you mention the Al Galdi podcast. So you get that special deal. Again, an aeration and two-fall fertilization services for just $209. Again, about $100 off the usual price for those services. That phone number again, 571-340-3400. And make sure that you mention the Al Galdi podcast so that you get the special deal. I want you to get that deal. You can also Google Weedman and make a web request. Just make sure that you mention the Al Galdi podcast. Weedman, a great lawn at a great price with great personal service. All right, so before we get to the actual football with the Washington football team, let us cap the name change confusion. Let us put a kappa on the name change confusion. So Tanya Snyder was a guest on the Adam Schefter podcast in an installment that dropped on Tuesday. When asked by Schefter whether the eight names featured in episode three of the Washington football team's YouTube series on the name change called Making the Brand were in fact the list of eight from which the final three candidates for the permanent name of the team were chosen, Tanya said, quote, that's right, has that been said, end quote. Here's how this exchange sounded. I heard the eight. We, we had the, the Armada, the Presidents, the Brigade, the Red Hogs, the Commanders, the Red Wolves, the Defenders. And WFT. I think those are the candidates, right? That's right. Has that been said? Okay, so we had that on Tuesday. The Washington football team on Tuesday night clarified to reporters that the final three candidates for the permanent name for the team did come from a list of names that included more than just eight names. Now, Schefter on Wednesday tweeted that he got told this from the team. I don't know if Schefter got told this on Wednesday or Schefter, in fact, was told this like others on Tuesday night, but didn't tweet that out until Wednesday. But whatever the case, Schefter's tweet on Wednesday served to like reignite this whole thing. The name change confusion has very much been a thing now for multiple days. And to me, we have to bottom line this, all right? Because this Tanya Snyder, Adam Schefter name change confusion thing, uh, I think it's a function of three things, okay? So the first thing is this. Adam Schefter was not properly prepared for the interview because he clearly didn't know what Jason Wright had tweeted about that list of eight. Uh, The list of eight, in case you don't know, is Armada, Presidents, Brigade, Red Hogs, Commanders, Red Wolves, Defenders, and WFT. Jason Wright, in a tweet on August 19th, confirmed that the Washington football team was down to and working through three final candidates for the permanent name of the team. Wright, in that tweet, addressed a tweet from Front Office Sports saying that Washington had narrowed its list of permanent name candidates to three from a list of eight. Tweeted Wright, quote, just to be clear, because everyone keeps asking, we are down to and working through a final three but this is no form of final eight list. These are just a selection of names that happened to show up in the video our team produced, end quote. More on that video in just a bit, but Schefter in his questioning of Tanya clearly didn't know or didn't remember that Jason had put out that tweet on August 19th. Now, my guess as to what happened is this. So you have Adam Schefter, maybe the number one NFL insider in the country. He works very hard. He's up at all hours. 
And he, in addition to all of his reporting, writing, and TV work, hosts a podcast for ESPN. Now, my guess would be that the Adam Schefter podcast is not something that rates supremely high on the Adam Schefter list of priorities. That would be my guess. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm not trying to say that Schefter phones it in on the podcast, but if you're Adam Schefter, you are far more prioritizing your reporting, writing, and TV work than you are prioritizing a podcast that you only do once in a while. And so I would be stunned if Schefter does his own prep for his podcast. My guess is that Schefter, like a lot of big machers in the media, has someone else do the research for him. An assistant, a producer, a slappy, as Jay Gruden likes to say. The problems in podcasting, radio, and TV, when you have someone do your research for you, are, and I've seen these things happen many times, A, you don't have a true command of the material because you didn't do the work, and B, the work may not even be correct because the slappy who did the research likely is young and or inexperienced and or not nearly as invested in the research being thorough and correct like you would be invested or at least should be invested. My guess is that this is what happened with Schefter. He doesn't know every ounce of minutia about this name change like we do. And honestly, I can't kill him for that. But whoever did Schefter's prep didn't do the prep thoroughly enough. You know, Schefter doesn't have the time or desire to do the prep for his podcast, has his slappy do the prep, and the prep didn't end up being good enough. You know, Schefter had his one sheet, or whatever it was, had this list of eight on the one sheet, and didn't know that Jason Wright had shot down the validity of that list weeks ago now. The second thing that this name change confusion is a function of, Tanya Snyder getting thrown off by Schefter's question and or not having complete command of the name change issue. Okay, like we have to say this here. Tanya Snyder is the co-CEO. I am somewhat sympathetic to her in that Schefter's line of questioning was misleading. And you could tell in her answer that she was unsure of what she was saying. But she needs to not be unsure. She needs to have a full supreme command of something as big as this name change issue. And if she has questions prior to doing the interview, she needs to get those questions answered. If she's unclear about where things stand, then she needs to talk to Jason Wright or whoever and say, hey, lay it out for me. Where are we exactly in this name change process? Okay, but she's got to know the material. And so when someone comes at her with something that's wrong, she needs to be able to fire back. No, Adam, actually, here's where we stand. Okay, Like, Tanya herself deserves some of the blame for this, okay? She's got to have a better command of the material. And I know that, you know, sometimes you get caught off guard and sometimes you say things and you're like, why did I say that? I know better than that. So I I, I get it, you know? This isn't the end of the world that Tanya did this, but she's got to be better than that. Again, co-CEO, okay? She's not some slappy, okay? She's not even middle-level management here, right? She's at the top of the food chain in this organization, at least for now. She's got to know precisely where things stand with the name change. So when she gets asked a question like that, as misleading as the question was, she can fire back and say, no, Adam, actually what you just said is wrong. Here's where we are with the name change. The third thing that this name change confusion is a function of, the Washington football team trying to be cute and provocative with that video. I said this on the podcast weeks ago off the release of that video and then some of the confusion that ensued 
with that video. I have no problem with the Washington football team trying to market the name change, trying to have fun with the name change, trying to engage the fan base with the name change. I think doing those things, perfectly fine. However, there is risk in doing those things. Part of the risk has to do with potentially annoying or even angering fans, especially those fans who don't want the name to change to begin with. As I've said, that YouTube series video, uh, that was a provocation in some ways with the bleeping out of the names and, ooh, which names are we talking about? Do you know which names we're talking about? You know, that kind of a thing. But the other thing is, the video was confusing. And all of the stuff that has come off that video, you know, the front office sports tweet about a list of eight, Jason Wright having to push back on that, people still not understanding, well, where did these three name finalists come from? Are they from the list of eight or are they in fact from something else? It hasn't been crystal clear. And unless you're following this on a day in, day out basis, it's easy to lose track of where we are and what exactly is true versus what isn't so true. In fact, did you hear this? I'm surprised this did not get more play on Wednesday. So Ron Rivera on Wednesday at his post-practice press conference got asked about his involvement in the name change process. (laughs) This cracked me up. Listen to what Ron had to say. It's been good. It has, you know, um, a few weeks back, yeah, they you know they asked my opinion. They they, they showed me the the, the, the color schemes and, and how it would work, and I gave them my opinions. And, and and now my understanding is that they've decided now they're down to three. I know there was at one point eight, but I know they're down to three, and that's where they are with it. Um, and so they'll get back together and they'll make their decision, and and it'll be exciting. Um, you know, and 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 whether we keep the old name or or of Washington football, or we pick something new, that'll be cool. Yeah. So right there. Ron, in that cut, makes the same mistake that Adam Schefter made and then Tanya Snyder made. Ron says that the final three name candidates came from that list of eight. Now they're down to three. I know there was at 1.8, but I know they're down to three. Yeah, I couldn't believe when Don Ron said that on Wednesday off everything that had happened Over the previous 24 hours, Ron didn't have the story straight in terms of where the final three named candidates came from. They did not come, at least according to Jason Wright, from that list of eight. And yet Ron put that back out there on Wednesday. Jason Wright must have been screaming on Wednesday when he heard Ron say that. Look, ultimately, as we all know, the name doesn't matter nearly as much as the team winning. And at this point, I think there is very much a fatigue for a lot of us with this name change issue, especially as we are on the doorstep of the start of the 2021 NFL regular season. And as we all know, the name doesn't matter nearly as much as the team winning. And that actually came up during Ron's post-practice press conference on Wednesday. So as you may recall, uh, Washington on August 6th conducted a Friday night practice at FedEx Field. Uh, Ron, at that post-practice press conference, said the following on whether he has a feel for where he stands with Washington football team fans in terms of winning them over. I think they're curious. You know, we've piqued their curiosity from last season, and we've got to get hold of them. Yeah, I think they're curious. That was an interesting word choice from Ron. I think that that was an apt word choice from Ron. 
And so Ron on Wednesday was asked about the next step for Washington with its fans. Well, that's up to us now. I mean, we got to keep up our part of the bargain. You know, they, they come out and cheer for us and support us, and we got to go out and produce. You know, that's the only way you get the fan base back. Uh, appreciate, you know, the, the, the folks uh, that come out and cheer for us. We appreciate them when we see them, you know, we're out in public. Um, but in order for us to be successful, we've got to go out and play good football. You know, we've got to play hard, clean, good football. Uh, and I think that's, that, that's how you win your fans back, by playing hard. Yeah. Play hard and play well. Win. That's what all of this comes down to, winning. There has been too much losing with this team over the last 28 seasons. And yeah, that's how long this has lasted for, 28 seasons. Joe Gibbs' final season as Washington head coach and his first go-round as Washington head coach was 1992. The problems for Washington started with the 1993 season. The problems did not start when Dan Snyder bought the team in May 1999. That is a falsity that's out there, that the problems started when Dan bought the team. No, the problems got worse with Dan, but Washington has not been a good franchise in terms of winning since the end of the 1992 season. And so when we talk about the name change, and inevitably there will be more confusion with the name change, it of course all comes back to winning. Just win because nothing else matters more in terms of the football product. All right, so the Washington football team practiced on Wednesday in preparation for Sunday's regular season opener against the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field. Wednesday was our chance to see Curtis Samuel hopefully participate in team drills for a second consecutive Washington practice. But instead... We got a very troubling development. So Samuel, of course, has been dealing with a groin injury for months now. Uh, Samuel on Monday participated in team drills at Washington practice for the first time since OTAs, though his work on Monday was limited. Washington did not practice on Tuesday, and then this happened on Wednesday. Samuel ran routes early in practice, but didn't look good, and then walked off to the side to work with trainers. There was video on Twitter of Samuel running these routes. It was on his last route in particular that he just did not look right. The Washington football team officially listed Samuel as not practicing at all on Wednesday. In fact, Washington's official injury report for Wednesday only had one player. That one player was Curtis Samuel. DNP did not practice due to a groin. Now, Uh, We should note this. The Chargers injury report on Wednesday included running back Austin Eckler not practicing due to a hamstring injury. So that's notable. Uh, Eckler not being able to play on Sunday would be a big deal. You could argue that that would actually be a bigger deal than Samuel not being able to play on Sunday. But no doubt, Curtis Samuel not being able to play would be significant. And Curtis Samuel not being able to play would not be good. Ron Rivera's post-practice press conference on Wednesday began with the following exchange with Washington football team insider Nikki Javala of the Washington Post. Regarding Curtis, we saw him do a little bit of um, just individual work at, at mm-hmm. the start of practice. And just from our vantage point in that early period, it, it looked like he had somewhat of a setback. Are you able to give us any more? Um, Other than that, no. No. Uh, what we'll do is we'll continue to monitor him. We'll see how he is tomorrow. He came out, warmed up, wasn't feeling quite as well as we'd hoped he would. 
So we'll just continue to monitor and see how he is tomorrow morning. How did he feel after Monday's practice? Uh, he, he felt pretty good. But we'll again, like I said, we'll see how he is tomorrow. Yeah, that didn't exactly come off as super encouraging. Uh, look, one of three things is happening here with Curtis Samuel. Option one, Samuel was doing better, was on the mend, and suffered a setback on Wednesday. Option two, Samuel has never really been doing that much better and has never truly been likely to play against the Chargers on Sunday. Option three, this entire thing is an elaborate work, a ruse, a hoax, a con, and Samuel is going to play against the Chargers on Sunday. Personally, I think that options one and two are far more likely than option three. The idea that this whole thing is a work would require a whole lot of work and effort that I just don't see Ron Rivera and Curtis Samuel doing. I mean, these guys have enough other things to be doing than to be scheming up some lengthy ploy to throw off the Chargers in week one. So what if Samuel can't play against the Chargers on Sunday? How confident is Ron in Washington's receivers beyond Curtis Samuel? Yeah, I'm very confident in the game plan and, and how those guys fit. And I have no concerns about that. Yeah, and that has been a consistent message from Ron throughout this Samuel saga. Ron has faith in Washington's receivers. Ron later in his post-practice press conference on Wednesday was asked if having been able to watch the likes of Deami Brown and even DeAndre Carter in Samuel's spot in training camp in the preseason helps to provide confidence in Washington being all right offensively should it be without Samuel on Sunday. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the guys that, that, that were here last year, you know, um, you feel really good about who Cam Sims is, you know, with, without a doubt in my mind. And, and, and Terry is as solid as it gets. You know, uh, you got Adam with his experience and you feel very comfortable and confident in that. And uh, obviously, uh, Deami is a, a, a guy that can run. And, and so he's a, you know, he's a big play waiting to happen. And then we've got a couple other young guys in, in, in DeAndre um, who's shown something for us that, that we really like a lot. And, uh, and I think Dax is a young man that has an opportunity to step up and, and, and be productive for us as well. And, and it's a good group. It really is. And, you know, if Curtis plays, great. And if he doesn't, great, because we get a lot of confidence in the other guys. Yeah, that supposedly improved Washington receiving core depth uh, may well be tested from the get-go in this 2021 regular season. And I do think that Washington is deeper at receiver. We'll find out how much deeper if, in fact, Curtis Samuel can't play. Uh, We also had this with Ron on Wednesday regarding Samuel. Uh, Ron wanted no part of talking about injured reserve. Take a listen to this exchange with Washington football team insider John Keim of ESPN. How hard is it when you have these kind of injuries to know when a guy might return and when you should put him on IR because now you can bring him back after a couple mm-hmm. weeks and, and that whole thought process. Well, I don't want to speculate that because I don't want anybody thinking that's what we're going to do. Is, is it hard, though, with those types of injuries to always know when a guy might be able to come back? Not necessarily. <laughs> yeah. Don Ron, zero interest in even entertaining the notion of placing Curtis Samuel on the reserve injured list. And speaking of Don Ron having no interest in talking about something, so Ryan Vermillion is Washington's director of sports medicine and head athletic trainer. You will hear Ron refer to an RV from time to time. RV is Ryan Vermillion. How about this? Ron's answer on Wednesday to whether Ryan Vermillion or anyone else on Washington's training staff has offered an explanation for why Curtis Samuel's recovery from his groin injury has taken so long. 
I will get an opportunity to talk to Ryan after this press conference, okay? Just so you guys know, I don't talk to the trainer until after, okay? I let him give you the updates. I'm not going to be able to answer questions on injuries until after the press conference. Again, Ron was not going to play that reindeer game. If you remember Homie the Clown on In Living Color back in the day, Homie the Clown used to say, Homie, don't play that. Ron Rivera, with those Curtis Samuel-related questions about injured reserve and what the training staff has said, said, Homie, don't play that. It's anybody's guess whether Curtis Samuel plays on Sunday against the Chargers, but assuming that this whole thing isn't a work, uh, Wednesday was not a good day. And you have to now wonder this, given that Washington's second regular season game comes just four days after Washington's first regular season game, is it not becoming increasingly likely that Washington is without Curtis Samuel for at least the first two games of the season? Washington will host the Chargers on Sunday, then will host the New York Giants the following Thursday night. Now, maybe the idea with not playing Samuel on Sunday would be so that you can have him play against the Giants in an NFC East game the following Thursday night. But you also can look at it like this. If the guy isn't healthy enough to play on Sunday, is it truly likely that he's healthy enough to play on Thursday night? And might the team be better off not playing Curtis Samuel until week three? Uh, That game is at the Buffalo Bills Sunday afternoon, September 26th at one. Well, in the meantime, we are focused on week one, the Los Angeles Chargers. Ron Rivera had some insightful stuff to say on Wednesday regarding what Washington will be facing in the Chargers at FedEx Field on Sunday. We'll get to that after this. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Pro teams have millions to spend, and they don't always spend them wisely. But when it comes to a great shave, you don't have to shell out tons of cash. Harry's saw customers getting ripped off by the shaving industry with overpriced, underperforming products and decided to do something better. They found their own way to make beautifully designed razors for a fraction of the price of the other big brands, so you never wonder if you overpaid. Harry's shaving products look great, and the weighted handle makes shaving feel great too. I like to keep my beard neat, and Harry's always leaves me with a smooth yet crisp shave. Harry's quality is top-notch, thanks to German-engineered blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. You can get a five-blade razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and a travel cover for just three bucks at harrys.com bluewire. 
and Harry's has the highest customer satisfaction in the shaving industry, plus a convenient subscription option that you can cancel at any time. Getting the best doesn't mean spending the most when you shave with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash bluewire. That's harrys.com slash bluewire for a $3 trial set. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We continue the Washington football team conversation right now. We have the Burgundy and Gold against the Bolts on Sunday. Washington versus the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field Sunday afternoon at 1 in Week 1. We on Tuesday show, Episode 139, spent a good bit of time talking about the Chargers starting quarterback Justin Herbert. We on Wednesday show, Episode 140, had a good chat with Chargers insider Jeff Miller of the Los Angeles Times. Right now, let's get into some other aspects of this game against the Chargers. So the Chargers have a good collection of skill position players. The top three receivers are Keenan Allen, Mike Williams, and Jalen Guyton. Uh, Most people know Allen and Williams. Don't sleep on Guyton. He, in the 2020 regular season, had 511 receiving yards on just 28 receptions, 18.3 yards per catch. The Chargers have a dual threat running back in Austin Eckler, who did not practice on Wednesday due to a hamstring injury. So That certainly bears worth monitoring. Eckler last regular season, 933 yards from scrimmage, over 170 touches. The Chargers did lose tight end Hunter Henry in free agency to the New England Patriots this past offseason, but the Chargers signed Jared Cook in free agency this past offseason. Cook, 22 touchdown receptions over the last three regular seasons, including 16 touchdown receptions over the last two regular seasons with the New Orleans Saints. Ron Rivera at his post-practice press conference on Wednesday on the Chargers skill position players. Well, it, it's got skilled, skilled players at, at every position. You feel good about who they are, um, you know, if you're them. And, uh, you know, last year they were very productive as an offense, and, and a lot of it starts with the quarterback. Yes, it does. Justin Herbert last regular season, his rookie season, 31 touchdown passes versus 10 interceptions. He finished sixth in the NFL in passing yards at 4,336. So Herbert was the Chargers' first-round pick in the 2020 NFL Draft. The Chargers, in the first round of the 2021 NFL Draft, took an offensive tackle, Rashawn Slater, with the number 13 pick. Slater is set to be the starting left tackle on a revamped Chargers offensive line. He played collegiately at Northwestern, which, of course, is in the Big Ten. And so he faced Chase Young while Chase was at Ohio State. And something that needs to be understood is that it was Rashawn Slater who arguably handled Chase Young better than any offensive tackle handled Chase in his final season at Ohio State. 2019, Ron on Wednesday on whether he studied Slater going into the 2021 NFL Draft. We did watch him. Um, We thought he was very athletic. We really do. We, we, you know, he, he, I believe he took the year off last year. Um, but he's a very athletic football player. He's, he's got good strength, good quickness. Uh, his footwork is, is, is exceptional. He's got 
long arms. Um, I, I think he's a guy that if he gets his hands on you, he can control you. And, and again, he, um, he did a nice job for, uh, for, for when he played. All right, so that brings us to this. Ron Rivera on Wednesday got asked what stood out to Ron in Rashawn Slater's battles with Chase Young in college. They were very competitive. And that was it. <laughs> they were very competitive. Ron was not interested in discussing Rashawn Slater's collegiate success against Chase Young. Chase Young has got to be motivated for this game, not just because it's week one, not just because Washington is facing a quarterback who had a big rookie season and Justin Herbert, but also because this is a talking point going into the game. Is Rashawn Slater some version of Chase Young kryptonite? Uh, I tend to think Chase Young can do just fine on Sunday, but let's see it. You know, Rashawn Slater did have some success against Chase Young two years ago. Well, Chase Young, of course, went to Ohio State, just like the Chargers' top edge rusher, Joey Bosa. Uh, Bosa was the first of the three stud edge rushers out of Ohio State in recent NFL drafts. Joey Bosa in 2016, Nick Bosa in 2019, Chase Young in 2020. Joey Bosa has 47 and a half sacks over 63 career regular season games. He last regular season for Pro Football Focus had an overall grade of 90.2, which is outstanding. PFF grades are on a scale of 0 to 100. So, you know, we talk Chase Young versus Rashawn Slater. Think about Joey Bosa versus Charles Leno Jr. and Samuel Cosme, depending on where Bosa lines up. Ron on Wednesday on Joey Bosa. I think he's got great first step quickness. He gets vertical very quickly and puts a lot of pressure on the uh, on, on the tackles, um, and and that's part of his game is 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 to put pressure on the tackle. And uh, so again, you you know, I think that's that's the first thing that that probably he does best. He gets you going, and then he goes from there. And Joey Bosa is part of a Chargers defense that now is led by rookie head coach Brandon Staley. So Brandon Staley is just thirty eight. He got the Chargers head coaching job off just one season as defensive coordinator for the Crosstown Los Angeles Rams. Ron on Wednesday on what to expect from Staley's Chargers defense. Well, I think when you, you look at um, what they did last year at, 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 at the Rams, you know, they, they had an exceptional inside pass rusher. Um, and, and, and so you can be very disruptive. And, and, and at times you can only, you don't have to rush. You don't have to blitz all the time. You can only rush four and you know, get, get a lot of things done. Um, I think he has something similar here. He's got some good pass rushers. Um, and again, you know, based on how they feel about it, it will dictate the coverages. Uh, if you can play some form of cover two, two zone or two man, um, and limit the quarterback's time, you can be very effective. Um, and so the pass rush really is key uh, to helping the secondary. Um, but then it is vice versa. If the secondary's on and doing things you can, it'll help the pass rush. Yeah, the Chargers defense also has safety Derwin James Jr., who was outstanding in his rookie season, but James has not been able to stay healthy since. James made first-team All-Pro for his 2018 rookie season, but he has played in just five games over the last two regular seasons due to injury. Uh, it's worth noting that Washington's defensive backs coach, Chris Harris, was the Chargers' assistant defensive backs coach from 2016 through 2019. It was under Harris's watch that the Chargers had two first-team All-Pro defensive backs for the 2018 season. Rookie safety Derwin James and also Desmond King. 
Now, also at Ron's post-practice press conference on Wednesday was him finally getting asked about Washington on Friday having signed a kicker to its practice squad. Yeah, Washington on Friday signed kicker Eddie Pinheiro to the practice squad. We talked about that on Monday's show, episode 138. What does the signing of Pinheiro to the practice squad mean for Dustin Hopkins? Ron on Wednesday. Well, he also punts too, so just so you guys know. What we did was we, we, we signed a guy for an emergency situation is, is what this is. We did the same thing last year, and we're kind of following the same pattern. We want just in case something happens, we have a guy ready to roll. Uh, he'll travel with us as well when we're on the road, and, and he'll be part of that too. And if something were to happen, uh, he'd be ready to be activated. All right, so A, Pinheiro also punts. B, Pinheiro has been signed for an emergency situation. All right. I mean, I think you can take Ron at his word with that answer. I do wonder if Hopkins struggles against the Chargers on Sunday, if he'll still be Washington's kicker come week two. But Ron has stuck by Hopkins. So it's quite possible that what Ron said on Wednesday is entirely the case here with this signing of Eddie Pinheiro. So Eddie Pinheiro is going into his age 26 season. He was waived by the Indianapolis Colts this past August 24th. Colts had signed Pinheiro this past May, but Pinheiro had a good preseason, four for four on field goals in this year's preseason. Did that over two games with the Colts. He nailed a third quarter 50-yard field goal in a 12-10 win at the Minnesota Vikings on August 21st. Pinheiro, though, has only been a kicker for a team in one regular season, 2019. Uh, It was during that season that he was the Chicago Bears kicker over all 16 games, went 23 for 28 on field goals, went just three of seven on field goals between 40 and 49 yards, but did go two for two on field goals of at least 50 yards. Pinheiro entered the NFL in May 2018 as an undrafted free agent with the Oakland Raiders. We are going to be dancing this dance with Dustin Hopkins for at least like the first month of the season, okay? Because we're not going to be able to say until we're at least four games into the season that Dustin Hopkins is doing well and we feel pretty good about him again. You know, I think this is going to be a week to week thing of where are you with Dustin Hopkins? And maybe Ron sticks with Hopkins no matter what, but that doesn't mean that we're not going to be following how old D Hop is doing and whether Washington should, in fact, be promoting Eddie Pinheiro from the practice squad. So I do think that there is pressure on Dustin Hopkins to perform and to perform right away. So with the Washington football team's regular season about to begin, we on Wednesday had the official naming of Washington's captains for the 2021 season. Washington on Wednesday announced eight captains for the 2021 season. Ryan Fitzpatrick, Terry McLaurin, Brandon Sheriff, Logan Thomas, Chase Young, Jonathan Allen, John Bostic, and DeShazer Everett. Ron Rivera at his post-practice press conference on Wednesday on his team captains, including the process by which the team arrived at captains for the 2021 season. Put a lot of stock in what they decide. You know, I trust those guys. You know, they, they, they know who's who. Um, what we did was uh, last year, the four captains that finished the season for us uh, were, 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 were holdovers. And then we voted on four new ones. Um, the players decided who they felt should be the other four. Uh, it was, what was really pleasing was there were a number of guys that got votes, which kind of shows you that the guys feel there's a lot of guys that can lead this team. So I felt very good about their decisions. Um, they're all good young men, and, and, and they're the kind of guys that uh, you want you're leading your team. 
Yeah, I don't think anybody has any problems with those eight guys being Washington's team captains. There are many ways for an NFL team to do captains for a season. You can have any number of captains. You can have set captains. You can rotate captains. You can have some set captains and some rotating captains. Uh, For instance, Ron Rivera, actually one year ago today, September 9th, 2020, named five captains for the 2020 season. Dwayne Haskins and Brandon Sheriff on offense, Jonathan Allen and Landon Collins on defense, and DeShazer Everett on special teams. Uh, Those guys were supposed to be Washington's five-season-long captains. Uh, They supposedly were decided strictly by player vote. Uh, Ron then was to select one additional captain for each game. So you can come up with any kind of formula that you want, but things, of course, can change. And with Dwayne Haskins last season, things did change. Dwayne, last December, stripped of his captaincy. And that brings me to this point. Uh, Washington's recent history of captains is not good. As former Washington head coach Steve Spurrier once said. Not very good. No. Washington's recent history of captains, not very good. Uh, Take a listen to what has gone down with just some of Washington's captains over the last decade. So we just mentioned Dwayne Haskins. He was an offensive captain for the 2020 season. We all know what happened with him. He got benched after week four in large part due to his lack of preparation and then got stripped of his captaincy last December due to Strippergate. You know, you got to really be off to get your captaincy stripped from you. I mean, that is not something that happens often. And yet that happened to Dwayne last season. Mason Foster was a defensive captain for Washington for the 2018 season. Why does that stand out? Because it was in December 2018 that we had the Mason Foster private Instagram conversation controversy. Do you remember this? A private chat that Mason had with a fan on Instagram was leaked on the night of December 11th, 2018, was verified on December 12th, 2018. In the conversation, Mason told the fan, quote, F this team and this fan base, end quote. That was followed by six laughing emojis. Mason also told the fan, quote, yeah, and I'm not effing with it or being a scapegoat to make fans feel better about all these big money people who ain't playing or getting dogged out, end quote. And Mason said in the exchange, quote, yeah, I'll try my chances and go to a winning team next year. Love the Redskins, but this ain't it for the African. Hashtag love, end quote. Uh, Jay Gruden on December 12th, 2018, did nothing but stand by Mason Foster. Then on December 13th, 2018, images of other private Instagram conversations involving Mason's account were shared on social media and Reddit. Uh, showed messages from Mason's account that directed a homophobic slur, quote, suck my D, F, end quote. And the F there isn't the F word. The F there is the homophobic slur that begins with an F. Uh, We also had profanity uh, in these messages, quote, F-U-P, end quote. And the the P would be the word that rhymes with wussy. Uh, We also had aggressive language directed toward fans, including high schoolers. Now, Mason ultimately issued an apology via a team spokesman, said that the messages were sent by a cousin who had been using his account to promote 
a charity initiative. Yeah, uh, that Gaston cousin, he was trying to promote charity work, and I don't know what happened. Golly gee, how did that happen? My cousin, it was my cousin's fault, and he was trying to do charity work. All of this happened in the 2018 season, for which, again, Mason Foster was a Washington defensive captain. One more time, he told the fan in that private Instagram conversation, quote, F this team and this fan base, end quote. You know, the culture is actually damn good. Yes, Bruce Allen, the culture. DJ Swearinger was a defensive captain for Washington for the 2017 season. Swearinger, over his two seasons with Washington, 2017 and 2018, had a habit of sounding off publicly after Washington losses. This happened over and over and over and over again. And that's not to say that the things that Swearinger complained about were wrong. Uh, I think Swearinger was actually right about a lot of what he said. But you don't air your dirty laundry like that as publicly and as frequently as Swearinger did, especially when you're a captain. Now, he was only a captain for that 2017 season, but the public sounding off after losses began in that 2017 season. I started keeping track of how often Swearinger was doing this. By my count, Swearinger sounded off publicly after a Washington loss at least seven times during his two seasons with Washington. He ultimately was waived on Christmas Eve 2018. Trent Williams was an offensive captain for Washington for years. In fact, Trent Williams was an offensive captain for Washington for each of seven consecutive seasons, 2011 through 2017. This was the case, even though he twice served a four-game suspension for marijuana-related reasons. Four-game suspension in 2011, four-game suspension in 2016. Put aside how you feel about athletes smoking weed. Plenty of athletes smoke. We all know that. Trent, for some reason, couldn't avoid getting suspended. The testing mechanisms that were in place at the time were really simple, okay? If you had a basic understanding of how the testing worked and about how long marijuana stays in your system, you could smoke and pass the tests and be just fine. And the NFL had kind of a wink-wink thing with marijuana going on of, we know you guys do it. We don't want to have to suspend you for it. For public relations reasons, we test you for it. So here is when the test is coming. If you pass that test, then you're in the clear. So all you really had to do was make sure that you passed the test. The testing was as much an IQ test as it was a drug test. In fact, do you know who has admitted to being a big smoker now that he's retired? Jordan Reed, okay? You know what never happened to Jordan Reed in his NFL career? Him getting suspended for weed. Jordan Reed figured it out. Trent Williams, for some reason, did not figure it out. And he got suspended twice. To say nothing, of course, of his holdout in 2019 and ultimately his ugly departure from the team. So Trent Williams was an offensive captain for Washington in each of seven consecutive seasons. How many other teams would have a guy who gets suspended twice be a captain for each of seven consecutive seasons. And yeah, each suspension happened during that seven-season stretch. He was an offensive captain 2011 through 2017 
First four-game suspension was in 2011. Second four-game suspension was in 2016. Now, was Trent a great player for Washington? Yes. Was Trent a tough player for Washington? Yes. But again, what does it say about the culture? That a guy who was twice suspended and who ultimately left the team in a very dishonorable way was an offensive captain for each of seven consecutive seasons. Okay, we're not talking about one, two, three years, seven years. You know, the culture is actually damn good. Yes, Brucey, the culture. So whatever happens this coming Washington football team season, uh, let us hope that the eight Washington football team captains who were named on Wednesday prove to be worthy choices. Ryan Fitzpatrick, Terry McLaurin, Brandon Sheriff, Logan Thomas, Chase Young, Jonathan Allen, John Bostick, and DeShazer Everett. All eight of those guys seem to be worthy choices as captains, but as we have learned, you never know. Well, in what has been a disappointing, eventful, and wild 2021 national season, we have had just about anything that you can think of, uh, like a game being suspended due to gunfire just outside Nationals Park. But one thing that we had not had was a fight with another team, or even really much of a contentious exchanging of hit-by-pitches. Well, we now have had the contentious exchanging of hit-by-pitches, although it doesn't seem as if the situation is going to escalate beyond that. The Nats on Wednesday night won at the National League East leading Atlanta Braves, 4-2 in Game 2 of a three-game series. Nats now 58-81 and on the season. And dare I say that Sean Nolan became a Nats hero in this game. And I say that facetiously, but uh, it was really interesting that Sean Nolan, of all people, ends up being put in this spot. So first of all, it was on Tuesday night in a Nats 8-5 loss at the Braves that Juan Soto, with one out in the top of the ninth, received a hit-by-pitch from Braves reliever Will Smith, with whom Soto has history. Fast forward to Wednesday night. Sean Nolan is the Nats starting pitcher in this eventual 4-2 win at the Braves. Sean Nolan is a guy who was called up from AAA Rochester a few weeks ago. Uh, Nolan entering this season had not pitched in a major league regular season game since October 2015. Sean Nolan is another one of these vagabonds, you know, another one of these castoffs, another one of these vigilantes who the Nationals have had to use this season because the Nationals have been so lacking in organizational depth. Well, Sean Nolan, who actually had been pretty good in each of his last two starts, ends up only lasting for a third of an inning. He, in the bottom of the first, with Jorge Soler on first off a one-out single, throws behind Freddie Freeman on the first pitch of a plate appearance. Very interestingly, does not receive a warning, at least as best as we can tell, and then hits Freeman on his right hip with the next pitch. Nolan eventually was ejected from the game as the umpires do have the latitude to read intent into a pitch. This was so obviously retaliation for what had happened the previous night between Soto and Will Smith. But there was no confrontation. You know, it's not like Freddie Freeman charged the mound. We did not get anything in the way of benches and bullpens emptying. Uh, Heck, Davey Martinez didn't even come out to argue Nolan's ejection. Now, that has to do with Davey being on crutches right now. 
due to a recent procedure. Uh, Davey was mad, or at least he pretended to be mad. Uh, it was pretty funny if you watched the game on TV. Davey very clearly from the dugout yelled at the home plate umpire, Lance Barksdale, uh, quote, Lance, what the F is going on, end quote. But otherwise, things ended up resolving pretty peacefully. Uh, in fact, Soto and Freeman were walking off the field stride for stride with each other and talking with each other after the end of the bottom of the first inning. Now, of course, after the game, you had Nolan during his post-game press conference denying throwing at Freeman intentionally. This is actually pretty funny. Nolan said that it was a humid night. The ball was slippery and the rosin doesn't do much for him. Oh, gosh darn it. I didn't mean to plunk poor Freddie Freeman. Things just worked out that way. Uh, Davey Martinez during his post-game press conference said that he has never told a player to intentionally throw uh, at a batter. Whatever. Sean Nolan intentionally threw at Freddie Freeman. And honestly, I get it. Because while, yes, Throwing at opposing batters because one of your batters got thrown at is kind of silly and foolish and immature when you think about it. You know, like, what did Freddie Freeman do to deserve that? You also have to say that this is how the game has operated for years. And while just because something is operated a certain way doesn't mean that that thing always has to operate that way, I put myself in the Nationals' position and I say, well, what else should they have done? Remember, the Nats didn't start this. It would be one thing if the Nats started this. The Nats did not start this. Will Smith started this the previous night in plunking Juan Soto. Now, if you happen to think that Will Smith plunking Juan Soto was accidental, then fine. I don't think that. I think it's too big of a coincidence to ignore that A, Will Smith and Juan Soto have history, and B, that was the ideal spot to plunk a Juan Soto a game in which the Braves had a pretty comfortable lead. They ended up winning the game 8-5. Nobody was on base. This was the top of the ninth inning. You know, that's about as serene of a time as you're going to get to throw at a guy like Juan Soto. And Will Smith did that on Tuesday night. So if you're the Nationals and you believe that Juan Soto was intentionally thrown at and intentionally hit, what are you supposed to do? Just take it? I, I mean, are, are you just supposed to say, eh, what are you going to do? It's not right for us to throw at Freddie. You know, the Nationals years ago had a reputation for being soft and quite frankly, for being wusses. Like if you're listening to this right now and you're a Nats fan and you're saying to yourself, you know, I don't really remember the Nats getting involved in a contentious exchange of hit by pitches, or I don't really remember the Nats being involved in any kind of a bean brawl war with another team. You're not wrong to be thinking that way because the Nationals haven't been involved in many of these things over the years because the Nats have had this reputation for just kind of taking it. And again, I understand like a lot of this is immature and, you know, Neanderthal, I, I got that. But it's one thing for us on the outside looking in to say, well, just be the bigger man. When you're in it, what are you supposed to do? Juan Soto is arguably the best hitter on the planet. He gets hit intentionally by Will Smith the previous night in a game at one of your chief rivals, if not your principal rival, the National League East leading Atlanta Braves. Should the Nats have just taken that? So I don't blame Sean Nolan for doing what he did. And I say that understanding that Sean Nolan getting tossed from that game ended up supremely taxing the bullpen. Sean Nolan hitting Freddie Freeman may well result in Sean Nolan being suspended. I get all that, you know? And if the Nats were in postseason contention, maybe I'd feel differently about all of this. But given the predicament that the Nats are in, I get it. I get it. To paraphrase something that the great Chris Rock said years ago, I'm not saying that I like it, 
but I understand. But I understand. Exactly, Chris Rock. Thank you. So the Nationals do end up winning the game. 4-2 was the final at the Braves, and the biggest reason for that was that the Nationals' bullpen was outstanding in this game. A Nats bullpen that has been all over the place recently was never better this season than what we saw on Wednesday night. Sean Nolan gets tossed with one out in the bottom of the first inning. Six Nationals relievers end up being utilized in this game, and those six relievers combined to allow two runs in eight and two-thirds innings with 12 strikeouts. Patrick Murphy tossed two and two-thirds scoreless innings with four strikeouts. Andres Machado did allow a run in the bottom of the fourth on a leadoff full-count homer by Adam Duvall, but Mason Thompson tossed a scoreless bottom of the fifth with two strikeouts, a four-pitch strikeout of Freddie Freeman, and a three-pitch strikeout of Adam Duvall. Austin Voth did give up a run in one and two-thirds innings. He gave up a two-out full-count game-tying solo homer to Eddie Rosario in the bottom of the sixth to tie the game at two. But then Wander Suero tossed one and a third perfect innings. Yeah, Wander Suero was on point on Wednesday night. In fact, Suero struck out Adam Duvall on three pitches for the final out in the bottom of the seventh, then tossed a perfect bottom of the eighth. And then Kyle Finnegan nailed the door shut with a scoreless bottom of the ninth, which he began with back-to-back strikeouts of a pinch-hitting Jock Peterson and Ozzie Albies. Finnegan's velocity was peaking around 97 miles per hour in this game. Terrific job by the Nationals' bullpen. Murphy, Machado, Thompson, Voth, Suero, Finnegan. Again, six Nats relievers combining to allow two runs in eight and two-thirds innings with 12 strikeouts. Also on Wednesday night, as an epilogue to what happened between Sean Nolan and Freddie Freeman, was Juan Soto launching a baseball to the moon. So Juan Soto in this game on Wednesday night, two for five with a solo home or a single and a stolen base. Soto in the top of the seventh blasted a towering two-out go-ahead solo homer to right field for a 3-2 Nats lead, and Soto destroyed that baseball. The homer winner projected 462 feet for StatCast, and the best part was that Soto, after the homer, blew a kiss toward the Braves' bullpen. Now, Soto, after the game, said that he was blowing the kiss at some of the fans in attendance near the bullpen. Uh, Okay, whatever. Just like I don't believe Sean Nolan for a second that he didn't throw intentionally at Freddie Freeman. I don't believe Juan Soto for a second that he wasn't directing that kiss toward Will Smith. Again, the kiss was blown toward the Braves' bullpen. Juan Soto was blowing that kiss at Will Smith. You can never convince me otherwise. And Juan Soto had every right to blow that kiss. That was some shot. Again, it projected 462 feet for StatCast. And again, that was a big home run in the game. A two-out go-ahead solo shot for a 3-2 Nats lead in the top of the seventh. Soto in the top of the ninth had a two-out single and a stolen base. So your Juan Soto major league leading on base percentage as we speak on this Thursday is at 449. Also homering on Wednesday night was Josh Bell, and he himself hit a big shot. One for four with a solo homer, a walk, and an RBI ground out. Bell in the top of the fourth, smashing a leadoff first pitch homer on a bomb to right center field to give the Nats a 2-0 lead. That home run going a projected 431 feet per stat cast. Bell in the top of the ninth drew a two-out five-pitch walk. Bell in the Nats one run first had a one-out RBI ground out. Josh Bell now with an OPS of 804 on the season. And how about this? Juan Soto and Josh Bell 
each now has 25 homers on the season. Each finally has tied Kyle Schwarber for the team lead in home runs this season. Yeah, old Schwarby, even though he was traded away more than a month ago, had remained the Nats leader in home runs this season because of that nuclear month of June that Schwarber had. Well, finally, we can say that Juan Soto and Josh Bell are tied for the team lead in home runs this season at 25. Soto, Bell, Schwarber, each with 25 home runs as a national this season. A few other observations from this 4-2 Nats win at the Braves on Wednesday night. Luis Garcia continues to hit, and he had another extra base hit in this game. One for four with an RBI double. Garcia in a Nats one-run eighth, a two-out RBI ground rule double to right field for a 4-2 Nats lead. Luis Garcia now is nine for 27 over his last seven games, and six of the nine hits, extra base hits, five doubles, a triple, and three singles. Look, Luis Garcia is not known as a great hitter. He is hitting rather well, though, here lately. So really good to see that as we continue, of course, to monitor these potential building blocks for the Nationals. Uh, I guess you have to say Yadiel Hernandez is a potential building block just because he's so new to Major League Baseball. He's not new to this earth. Uh, This is his age 33 season, but this is also technically his rookie season, and Yadiel continues to hit. He was out there on Wednesday night as an ad starting left fielder, a number five batter, one for three with a single and two walks. Uh, Yadiel in the top of the first had a two out five pitch walk. Yadiel in the top of the fourth drew a four pitch walk. And Yadiel in the Nats one run eighth, a leadoff single. He now has a 342 on base percentage this season. Uh, K-Bert Ruiz was back out there as an ad starting catcher on Wednesday night. Good to see that. K-Bert had not started a game for the Nationals since this past Saturday afternoon. He started that 11-9-9 inning loss to the New York Mets at Nationals Park in game one of a doubleheader, but he in that game suffered a right knee bone bruise. Uh, K-Bert on Wednesday night 0-2, but he did draw two walks. Top of the second, leadoff five-pitch walk. Top of the sixth, one-out five-pitch walk. And an interesting night for Lane Thomas. So he, of course, continues to be the Nats' every game starting center fielder at number one batter. 0-4 with a walk and 1-2 on stolen bases. So first of all, the good from Lane Thomas. He essentially manufactured a run in that Nats one run first. He reached base via a throwing error by Braves third baseman Austin Riley, then stole second base, then advanced to third on a Juan Soto ground out, and then scored on a Josh Bell ground out. Like, that's a classic definition of manufacturing a run. You score on an error, a stolen base, and two ground outs. But then we got what we got in the top of the ninth with Lane Thomas. So first of all, he did do something good in that top of the ninth. Lead off eight-pitch walk despite having been down in the count at one point, 0-2. So that's good. That's really good. But Lane Thomas then got caught trying to steal second base in a really bizarre way. He slowed down while running and thinking that the pitch had been fouled off and was a dead ball, uh, but he was wrong. The ball was not dead, and Lane Thomas ended up being out by a mile, so much so that he didn't even slide into second base. He got tagged. It, it felt like you know 15 feet in front of second base. Uh, Lane Thomas has had a few of these base running blunders here lately. And, you know, I highlight this because the guy who Lane Thomas has supplanted as the Nats every game center fielder and leadoff batter, Victor Robles, he has been skewered over the years for base running boo-boos. And look, Victor has deserved that criticism. But fair is fair. If we're going to crush Robles when he does stuff like this, we got to be critical of Lane Thomas when he does something like what he did on Wednesday night. Game three at the Braves, Thursday night at 7.20. Eric Fetty, will be the Nats' starting pitcher. Who knows what the state of the Nats' bullpen is coming off that outing on Wednesday night. Again, six Nats relievers combining to allow two runs in eight and two-thirds innings 
with 12 strikeouts. Fetty has not been good at all for a while now. And so, you know, if you're saying, you know, the Nats need Eric Fetty to eat up a bunch of innings on Thursday night, uh, yeah, you're right. But also, yeah, uh, you're really counting on that? Uh, Eric Fetty in his last outing, the 11-9-9 inning loss to the Mets at Nationals Park on Saturday afternoon in game one of the doubleheader, seven runs, four earned in three innings. Fetty over his last 12 starts has an ERA of 663. I still would like to see Eric Fetty end his season on a high note, but as time goes on, it's becoming harder and harder to believe that that's going to happen. Uh, Fetty was good initially this season. First 10 starts had an ERA of 333, but Fetty on the season, 23 starts in ERA of 527. One more thing while we're talking nationals and baseball right now. Were you aware that the induction ceremony for the 2020 class of the National Baseball Hall of Fame was on Wednesday afternoon? I was not aware of this until the ceremony was going on. So we did not have an induction ceremony last year because of the COVID-19 pandemic. There doesn't need to be a traditional induction ceremony this year because no candidates from the 2021 Hall of Fame ballot met the 75% threshold required for induction. Kurt Schilling came the closest with 71.1% of the vote. So you had the likes of Derek Jeter, Larry Walker, Ted Simmons, Marvin Miller being inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame as the class of 2020. Well, no induction ceremony last year, so you were going to have that ceremony this year. And the ceremony ends up happening on Wednesday afternoon. Wednesday afternoon, September 8th, as we are out of summer vacation for most, if not everyone, as it is the middle of the week, as we're a day before the start of the NFL regular season. That's when the National Baseball Hall of Fame saw fit to have its induction ceremony this year. Now, I'm sure the Baseball Hall of Fame has its reasons for doing the ceremony on Wednesday afternoon. And I want to make clear that MLB does not run the National Baseball Hall of Fame. The National Baseball Hall of Fame is separate from Major League Baseball. But this, to me, is another example of the sport of baseball at the highest level doing a terrible job of marketing itself. We have seen this for years with the lackluster ho-hum schedule release by MLB. We saw this basically up until this year with the MLB draft. MLB finally got its act together, put the MLB draft on Sunday primetime, did a big rating with that. But with the Hall of Fame induction, which traditionally happens on a Sunday afternoon in July, and that's not great either because you're going head-to-head with MLB games. But to do this ceremony Wednesday afternoon with most, if not everyone, done with summer vacation, kids back in school, football season getting going, and you just throw this out there. Hey, Derek Jeter, Larry Walker, Ted Simmons, the late Marvin Miller, congratulations. Welcome to Cooperstown. I could not get over that that ceremony happened on Wednesday afternoon. You talk about trying to bury something, that's about as much of a burial of a something as you can ever have. I I don't get it at all. Baseball has got to get its act together in trying to market itself. So guess what? The Orioles no longer have the worst record in the majors. That, my friends, is progress. Uh, The O's on Wednesday night won for the fourth time in five games, a 9-8 win over the Kansas City Royals at Oriole Park 
at Camden Yards in Game 3 of a four-game series. The O's scored all nine of their runs in one inning, the eighth inning. Yeah, the O's authored a nine-run eighth. O's then gave up three runs in the top of the ninth. Uh, Thank you, Dylan Tate. Uh, But the O's held on for the win as they were, yes, again, in the win column. And the Orioles again in the win column. Yes, Joe Angel. And so the O's now are 45 and 93. Worst record in the American League, but not the worst record in the majors. The Arizona Diamondbacks are a major league worst 45 and 95. You see, who says that the O's are tanking? Uh, But yeah, man, that nine-run eighth on Wednesday night was something else. Here's all that you need to know. Ryan Mountcastle in that nine-run eighth had two hits. Uh, He had a single, despite having been down in the count at 1.02. And he had a two-out, two-run homer off the right field foul pole for a 9-5 Orioles lead. The foul pole should be the fair pole because when a baseball hits the foul pole, the baseball is fair. But anyway, uh, Ryan Mountcastle continues to just kill it. I love what we've seen from him over the last month plus now. Mountcastle now this season, 26 homers, a slugging percentage of 495, and OPS of 813. Austin Hayes in that Orioles nine-run eighth inning, a first pitch RBI double to extend his career best hitting streak to 15 games. So two Orioles building blocks continue to do well. Mountcastle and Hayes. Uh, Matt Harvey was the Orioles starting pitcher. He did not do well in this 9-8 win over the Royals at Camden Yards on Wednesday night. Four runs, three earned in four into third innings. The problem was that Harvey gave up nine hits, three doubles, and six singles. He did only have two strikeouts, but he only issued one walk, and it was an intentional walk. And Harvey threw strikes, 51 strikes versus 23 balls on 74 pitches. But we continue to play out the string uh, with Matt Harvey and that Orioles rotation. 28 starts for Harvey now this season. ERA of 627. While we're talking about Orioles pitchers named Harvey, uh, the O's on Tuesday transferred Hunter Harvey to the 60-day injured list. And I wanted to hit on this because uh, this is significant here. Hunter Harvey, he is in the midst of another lost season. Now, his season isn't necessarily over with this transfer to the 60-day IL, but the move is a reminder of this season, again, being another lost season for Hunter Harvey. So the O's on July 2nd put Harvey on the 10-day injured list with a right latch strain. This move to the 60-day IL came with the O's saying that Harvey has a right tricep strain. Uh, Harvey has been pitching for AAA Norfolk. Um, Look, Hunter Harvey, I mean, the story of his career has been injury. And there are no two ways about it. Hunter Harvey this season has thrown eight and two-thirds innings at the major league level. He, in his career, has totaled 23 and two-thirds major league innings. The O's took Harvey with the number 22 overall pick in the 2013 MLB draft. Yeah, he was a first-round pick in 2013 And yet, as we speak right now, in 2021, he has totaled 23 and two-thirds major league innings. Now, he is still actually, numerically anyway, young. Uh, This season is only his age 26 season, but the guy has just dealt with a truckload of injuries. Harvey missed the entire 2015 season due to a right elbow strain. Harvey underwent Tommy John surgery in July 2016. Harvey in 2018 dealt with right elbow discomfort and a right shoulder problem. 
Harvey in August 2019 made his major league debut and looked great. One run in five and a third innings with 10 strikeouts over his first six appearances, but he then pitched in one game the rest of the season due to right bicep soreness. Harvey, this past March 12th, threw just one pitch in a Grapefruit League game and then left the game due to a left oblique injury. He ended up being on the Orioles' 60-day injured list from March 16th to June 4th. Then he suffers this right lat strain and has been on an injured list since July 2nd. Uh, It's a shame what has happened with Hunter Harvey. He has talent. He is a flamethrower, but the guy just cannot stay healthy. Uh, One other item regarding the Orioles that we have to make mention of, and that is this. The O's on back-to-back nights now have set all-time lows for full capacity attendance at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. The Orioles' 7-3 win over the Royals at Camden Yards on Tuesday night had an announced attendance of 4,981. That had been the lowest attendance ever for an Orioles game at Camden Yards for a game in which 100% capacity was allowed. That record stood for one day because this Orioles 9-8 win over the Royals at Camden Yards on Wednesday night had an announced attendance of 4,965. Look, uh, the Orioles have had an attendance problem for years now, and the attendance problem started prior to the rebuild, prior to the tank. Uh, People will say otherwise. That is not true. Now, the rebuild, the tank, uh, that has not helped. Okay, no doubt about that. But the Orioles had attendance problems prior to the team falling off the cliff, beginning with what happened in September 2017. Okay, if we're being truthful about it, uh, this has been an issue for a while here, and there's a lot to it. Uh, Some of it, quite frankly, has to do with the state of the city of Baltimore. Okay. But uh, yeah, man, this is not good. This is not good at all. And, you know, Peter Angelos has been in failing health for years. The widespread belief has been that when Peter Angelos passes, his sons will sell the Orioles. And there has been this fear that the Orioles will be relocated. Uh, I obviously would hate to see that. I don't think that we're going to see that, but I don't think anyone can guarantee that here. Um, You know, what I hope happens is that some deep-pocketed owner who actually is invested in the team doing well and is willing to spend, ends up buying the franchise. I do think there is very much a sleeping giant aspect to the Orioles. Baltimore can be a great baseball city. The Orioles were at one time a great baseball franchise, but things have not gone well. And if you take a step back, things have not gone well for many, many years, okay? Uh, The Orioles, you you could frame it like this. Since the Orioles won the 1983 World Series, things have not gone very well, okay? You can count the number of times that the Orioles have made the playoffs since winning the 1983 World Series on one hand. 1996, 1997, 2012, 2014, and 2016, all right? Unless you have a four-fingered hand, uh, that's five times that the O's have made the playoffs since winning the 1983 World Series. The Ravens have far surpassed the Orioles in terms of interest in the city of Baltimore. But it's still very sad. I mean, we we know all this. This isn't new. But it's still sad to be saying that the Orioles on back-to-back nights this week now, Tuesday night and Wednesday night, have set all-time attendance lows for games at Camden Yards in terms of games for which 100% capacity is allowed. I remember as a kid 
when Camden Yards opened the 1992 season. That was one of the hottest tickets in sports. Tickets to an Orioles game at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. The O's in April 1993 set a then-Major League record with a home sellout streak at Oriole Park at Camden Yards that reached 65 consecutive games. We are a ways away from those days. And so given all of that, given the opponent this week, because that plays a role in this too, the faceless Kansas City Royals, you get what you got. Back-to-back attendance figures that are all-time lows. Game four against the Royals at Camden Yards, Thursday night at 7.05. John Means will be the Orioles starting pitcher for the uh, dozens in attendance. All right, my friends, that will do it for you and me. But just for now, keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Friday show, episode 142, will be our first true football Friday ever on the Al Galdi podcast. A truly monumental occurrence. I will have for you the very latest on the Washington football team, including my rhyming keys for week one against the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field. My keys to a Washington win in rhyming fashion. Always remember, the worse the rhyme, the better the time. Uh, I also will have for you Goldilocks for college football's week two, my weekly previews and picks for Maryland Navy, Virginia Tech, and Virginia. Have a great rest of your Thursday. Go Bucks against the Cowboys on Thursday night, and I'll talk to you on Friday. Now they're down to three. I know there was at 1.8, but I know they're down to three. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.